The high of winning was so immediate. The pain of losing passed so fast. You want to be a big shot, her mother told her when Backman called to borrow more money. You keep gambling because you want the attention. That wasn't it, though. I just wanted to feel good at something, she said to me. This was the only thing I'd ever done where it seemed like I had a skill. By the summer of 2001, Barkman's debts to Harris hit $20,000. She had been keeping the losses secret from her husband, but when her mother finally cut off the stipends, she broke down and confessed. They hired a bankruptcy attorney, cut up her credit cards, and sat at the kitchen table to write out a plan for a more austere, responsible life. She took her dresses to a used clothing store and withstood the humiliation of a 19-year-old turning down almost all of them because, she said, they were out of style. Eventually, it started to feel like the worst was over. Finally, she thought, the compulsion was gone. But, of course, it wasn't even close to the end. Years later, after she had lost everything and had ruined her life and her husband's, after she had thrown away hundreds of thousands of dollars and her lawyer had argued before the state's highest court that Angie Backman gambled not by choice, but out of habit, and thus shouldn't bear culpability for her losses, after she had become an object of scorn on the internet, where people compared her to Jeffrey Dahmer and parents who abused their kids, she would wonder, how much responsibility do I actually bear? I honestly believe anyone in my shoes would have done the same things, Backman told me. On a July morning in 2008, a desperate man vacationing along the west coast of Wales picked up the phone and called an emergency operator. I think I've killed my wife, he said. Oh my god. I thought someone had broken in. I was fighting with those boys but it was Christine. I must have been dreaming or something. What have I done? What have I done? Ten minutes later, police officers arrived to find Brian Thomas crying next to his camper van. The previous night, he explained, he and his wife had been sleeping in the van when young men racing around the parking lot had awoken them. They moved their camper to the edge of the lot and went back to sleep. Then, a few hours later, Thomas woke to find a man in jeans and a black fleece, one of the racers, he thought, lying on top of his wife. He screamed at the man, grabbed him by the throat, and tried to pull him off. It was as if he was reacting automatically, he told the police. The more the man struggled, the harder Thomas squeezed. The man scratched at Thomas's arm and tried to fight back, but Thomas choked, tighter and tighter, and eventually the man stopped moving. Then, Thomas realized it wasn't a man in his hands, but his wife. He dropped her body and began gently nudging her shoulder, trying to wake her, asking if she was all right. It was too late. I thought somebody had broken in and I strangled her, Thomas told the police, sobbing. She's my world. For the next ten months, as Thomas sat in prison awaiting trial, a portrait of the murderer emerged. As a child, Thomas had started sleepwalking, sometimes multiple times each night. He would get out of bed, walk around the house and play with toys or fix himself something to eat and, the next morning, remember nothing about what he had done. It became a family joke. Once a week, it seemed, he would wander into the yard or someone else's room, all while asleep. It was a habit, his mother would explain when neighbors asked why her son was walking across their lawns, barefoot and in his pajamas. 
As he grew older, he would wake up with cuts on his feet and no memories of where they had come from. He once swam in a canal without waking. After he married, his wife grew so concerned about the possibility that he might stumble out of the house and into traffic that she locked the door and slept with the keys under her pillow. Every night, the couple would crawl into bed and have a kiss and a cuddle, Thomas later said, and then he would go to his own room and sleep in his own bed. Otherwise his restless tossing and turning, the shouting and grunting and occasional wanderings, would keep Christine up all night. Sleepwalking is a reminder that wake and sleep are not mutually exclusive, Mark Mahowald, a professor of neurology at the University of Minnesota and a pioneer in understanding sleep behaviors, told me. The part of your brain that monitors your behavior is asleep, but the parts capable of very complex activities are awake. The problem is that there's nothing guiding the brain except for basic patterns, your most basic habits. You follow what exists in your head, because you're not capable of making a choice. By law, the police had to prosecute Thomas for the murder. But all evidence seemed to indicate that he and his wife had a happy marriage prior to that awful night. There wasn't any history of abuse. They had two grown daughters and had recently booked a Mediterranean cruise to celebrate their 40th wedding anniversary. Prosecutors asked a sleep specialist, Dr. Chrissy Gikowski of the Edinburgh Sleep Center, to examine Thomas and evaluate a theory, that he had been unconscious when he killed his wife. In two separate sessions, one in Ejikovsky's laboratory and the other inside the prison, the researcher applied sensors all over Thomas's body and measured his brain waves, eye movement, chin and leg muscles, nasal airflow, respiratory effort, and oxygen levels while he slept. Thomas wasn't the first person to argue that he had committed a crime while sleeping and thus, by extension, should not be held responsible for his deed. There's a long history of wrongdoers contending they aren't culpable due to automatism, as sleepwalking and other unconscious behaviors are known. And in the past decade, as our understanding of the neurology of habits and free will has become more sophisticated, those defenses have become more compelling. Society, as embodied by our courts and juries, has agreed that some habits are so powerful that they overwhelm our capacity to make choices, and thus we're not responsible for what we do. Sleepwalking is an odd outgrowth of a normal aspect of how our brains work while we slumber. Most of the time, as our bodies move in and out of different phases of rest, our most primitive neurological structure, the brain stem, paralyzes our limbs and nervous system, allowing our brains to experience dreams without our bodies moving. Usually, people can make the transition in and out of paralysis multiple times each night without any problems. Within neurology, it's known as the switch. Some people's brains, though, experience switching errors. They go into incomplete paralysis as they sleep, and their bodies are active while they dream or pass between sleep phases. This is the root cause of sleepwalking and for the majority of sufferers, it is an annoying but benign problem. Someone might dream about eating a cake, for instance, and the next morning find a ravaged box of donuts in the kitchen. Someone will dream about going to the bathroom, and later discover a wet spot in the hall. Sleepwalkers can behave in complex ways, for instance, they can open their eyes, see, move around, and drive a car or cook a meal, all while essentially unconscious, because the parts of their brain associated with seeing, walking, 
driving, and cooking can function while they are asleep without input from the brain's more advanced regions, such as the prefrontal cortex. Sleepwalkers have been known to boil water and make tea. One operated a motorboat. Another turned on an electric saw and started feeding in pieces of wood before going back to bed. But in general, sleepwalkers will not do things that are dangerous to themselves or others. Even asleep, there's an instinct to avoid peril. However, as scientists have examined the brains of sleepwalkers, they've found a distinction between sleepwalking, in which people might leave their beds and start acting out their dreams or other mild impulses, and something called sleep terrors. When a sleep terror occurs, the activity inside people's brains is markedly different from when they are awake, semi-conscious, or even sleepwalking. People in the midst of sleep terrors seem to be in the grip of terrible anxieties, but are not dreaming in the normal sense of the word. Their brains shut down except for the most primitive neurological regions, which include what are known as central pattern generators. These areas of the brain are the same ones studied by Dr. Larry Squire and the scientists at MIT, who found the neurological machinery of the habit loop. To a neurologist, in fact, a brain experiencing a sleep terror looks very similar to a brain following a habit. The behaviors of people in the grip of sleep terrors are habits, though of the most primal kind. The central pattern generators at work during a sleep terror are where such behavioral patterns as walking, breathing, flinching from a loud noise, or fighting an attacker come from. We don't usually think about these behaviors as habits, but that's what they are, automatic behaviors so ingrained in our neurology that, studies show, they can occur with almost no input from the higher regions of the brain. However, these habits, when they occur during sleep terrors, are different in one critical respect, because sleep deactivates the prefrontal cortex and other high cognition areas, when a sleep terror habit is triggered, there is no possibility of conscious intervention. If the fight or flight habit is cued by a sleep terror, there is no chance that someone can override it through logic or reason. People with sleep terrors aren't dreaming in the normal sense, said Mahawald, the neurologist. There's no complex plots like you and I remember from a nightmare. If they remember anything afterward, it's just an image or emotions, impending doom, horrible fear, the need to defend themselves or someone else. Those emotions are really powerful, though. They are some of the most basic cues for all kinds of behaviors we've learned throughout our lives. Responding to a threat by running away or defending ourselves is something everyone has practiced since they were babies. And when those emotions occur, and there's no chance for the higher brain to put things in context, we react the way our deepest habits tell us to. We run or fight or follow whatever behavioral pattern is easiest for our brains to latch onto. When someone in the midst of a sleep terror starts feeling threatened or sexually aroused, two of the most common sleep terror experiences, they react by following the habits associated with those stimuli. People experiencing sleep terrors have jumped off of tall roofs because they believed they were fleeing from attackers. They have killed their own babies because, they believed, they were fighting wild animals. They have raped their spouses, even as their victims begged them to stop, because once the sleeper's arousal began, they followed the ingrained habit to satisfy the urge. Sleepwalking seems to allow some choice, some participation by our higher brains that tell us to stay away from the edge of the roof. Someone in the grip of a sleep terror, however, 
simply follows the habit loop no matter where it leads. Some scientists suspect sleep terrors might be genetic, others say diseases such as Parkinson's make them more likely. Their causes aren't well understood, but for a number of people, sleep terrors involve violent impulses. Violence related to sleep terrors appears to be a reaction to a concrete, frightening image that the individual can subsequently describe, a group of Swiss researchers wrote in 2009. Among people suffering one type of sleep dysfunction, attempted assault of sleep partners has been reported to occur in 64% of cases, with injuries in 3%. In both the United States and the United Kingdom, there is a history of murderers arguing that sleep terrors caused them to commit crimes they would have never consciously carried out. Four years before Thomas was arrested, for instance, a man named Jules Lowe was found not guilty of murdering his 83-year-old father after claiming that the attack occurred during a sleep terror. Prosecutors argued it was far-fetched in the extreme to believe that Lowe was asleep while he punched, kicked, and stamped his father for more than 20 minutes, leaving him with over 90 injuries. The jury disagreed and set him free. In September 2008, 33-year-old Donna Shepard Saunders nearly suffocated her mother by holding a pillow over her face for 30 seconds. She was later acquitted of attempted murder by arguing that she had acted while asleep. In 2009, a British soldier admitted to raping a teenage girl, but said he was asleep and unconscious while he undressed himself, pulled down her pants, and began having sex. When he woke, mid-rape, he apologized and called the police. I've just sort of committed a crime, he told the emergency operator. I honestly don't know what happened. I woke up on top of her. He had a history of suffering from sleep terrors and was found not guilty. More than 150 murderers and rapists have escaped punishment in the past century using the automatism defense. Judges and juries, acting on behalf of society, have said that since the criminals didn't choose to commit their crimes, since they didn't consciously participate in the violence, they shouldn't bear the blame. For Brian Thomas, it also looked like a situation where a sleep disorder, rather than a murderous impulse, was at fault. I'll never forgive myself, ever, he told one of the prosecutors. Why did I do it? After Dr. Rijikovsky, the sleep specialist, observed Thomas in his laboratory, he submitted his findings, Thomas was asleep when he killed his wife. He hadn't consciously committed a crime. As the trial started, prosecutors presented their evidence to the jury. Thomas had admitted to murdering his wife, they told jurors. He knew he had a history of sleepwalking. His failure to take precautions while on vacation, they said, made him responsible for his crime. But as arguments proceeded, it became clear prosecutors were fighting an uphill battle. Thomas's lawyer argued that his client hadn't meant to kill his wife, in fact, he wasn't even in control of his own actions that night. Instead, he was reacting automatically to a perceived threat. He was following a habit almost as old as our species, the instinct to fight an attacker and protect a loved one. Once the most primitive parts of his brain were exposed to a cue, someone strangling his wife, his habit took over and he fought back, with no chance of his higher cognition interceding. Thomas was guilty of nothing more than being human, the lawyer argued, and reacting in the way his neurology, and most primitive habits, forced him to behave.
Even the prosecution's own witnesses seemed to bolster the defense. Though Thomas had known he was capable of sleepwalking, the prosecution's own psychiatrist said, there was nothing to suggest to him that it was therefore foreseeable he might kill. He had never attacked anyone in his sleep before. He had never previously harmed his wife. When the prosecution's chief psychiatrist took the stand, Thomas's lawyer began his cross-examination. Did it seem fair that Thomas should be found guilty for an act he could not know was going to occur? In her opinion, said Dr. Caroline Jacob, Thomas could not have reasonably anticipated his crime. And if he was convicted and sentenced to Broadmoor Hospital, where some of Britain's most dangerous and mentally ill criminals were housed, well, he does not belong there. The next morning, the head prosecutor addressed the jury. At the time of the killing the defendant was asleep and his mind had no control over what his body was doing, he said. We have reached the conclusion that the public interest would no longer be served by continuing to seek a special verdict from you. We therefore offer no further evidence and invite you to return a straight not guilty verdict. The jury did so. Before Thomas was set free, the judge told him, you are a decent man and a devoted husband. I strongly suspect you may well be feeling a sense of guilt. In the eyes of the law you bear no responsibility. You are discharged. It seems like a fair outcome. After all, Thomas was obviously devastated by his crime. He had no idea what he was doing when he acted, he was simply following a habit, and his capacity for decision-making was, in effect, incapacitated. Thomas is the most sympathetic murderer conceivable, someone so close to being a victim himself that when the trial ended, the judge tried to console him. Yet many of those same excuses can be made for Angie Backman, the gambler. She was also devastated by her actions. She would later say she carries a deep sense of guilt. And as it turns out, she was also following deeply ingrained habits that made it increasingly difficult for decision-making to intervene. But in the eyes of the law Backman is responsible for her habits, and Thomas isn't. Is it right that Backman, a gambler, is guiltier than Thomas, a murderer? What does that tell us about the ethics of habit and choice? That Three years after Angie Backman declared bankruptcy, her father passed away. She'd spent the previous half-decade flying between her home and her parents' house, tending to them as they became increasingly ill. His death was a blow. Then, two months later, her mother died. My entire world disintegrated, she said. I would wake up every morning, and for a second forget they had passed, and then it would rush in that they were gone and I'd feel like someone was standing on my chest. I couldn't think about anything else. I didn't know what to do when I got out of bed. When their wills were read, Backman learned she had inherited almost $1 million. She used $275,000 to buy her family a new home in Tennessee, near where her mother and father had lived, and spent a bit more to move her grown daughters nearby so everyone was close. Casino gambling wasn't legal in Tennessee, and I didn't want to fall back into bad patterns, she told me. I wanted to live away from anything that reminded me of feeling out of control. She changed her phone numbers and didn't tell the casinos her new address. It felt safer that way. Then one night, driving through her old hometown with her husband, picking up the last of their furniture from her previous home, she started thinking about her parents. How would she manage without them? Why hadn't she been a better daughter? She began hyperventilating. 
It felt like the beginning of a panic attack. It had been years since she had gambled, but in that moment she felt like she needed to find something to take her mind off the pain. She looked at her husband. She was desperate. This was a one-time thing. Let's go to the casino, she said. When they walked in, one of the managers recognized her from when she was a regular and invited them into the player's lounge. He asked how she had been, and it all came tumbling out, her parents passing and how hard it had hit her, how exhausted she was all the time, how she felt like she was on the verge of a breakdown. The manager was a good listener. It felt so good to finally say everything she had been thinking and be told that it was normal to feel this way. Then she sat down at a blackjack table and played for three hours. For the first time in months, the anxiety faded into background noise. She knew how to do this. She went blank. She lost a few thousand dollars. Hera's Entertainment, the company that owned the casino, was known within the gaming industry for the sophistication of its customer tracking systems. At the core of that system were computer programs much like those Andrew Pohl created at Target, predictive algorithms that studied gamblers' habits and tried to figure out how to persuade them to spend more. The company assigned players a predicted lifetime value, and software built calendars that anticipated how often they would visit and how much they would spend. The company tracked customers through loyalty cards and mailed out coupons for free meals and cash vouchers, telemarketers called people at home to ask where they had been. Casino employees were trained to encourage visitors to discuss their lives, in the hopes they might reveal information that could be used to predict how much they had to gamble with. One Harris executive called this approach Pavlovian marketing. The company ran thousands of tests each year to perfect their methods. Customer tracking had increased the company's profits by billions of dollars, and was so precise they could track a gambler's spending to the cent and minute. Two Harris, of course, was well aware that Backman had declared bankruptcy a few years earlier and had walked away from $20,000 in gambling debts. But soon after her conversation with the casino manager, she began receiving phone calls with offers of free limos that would take her to casinos in Mississippi. They offered to fly her and her husband to Lake Tahoe, put them in a suite, and give them tickets to an Eagles concert. I said my daughter has to come, and she wants to bring a friend, Backman said. No problem, the company replied. Everyone's airfare and rooms were free. At the concert, she sat in the front row. Harris gave her $10,000 to play with, compliments of the house. The offers kept coming. Every week another casino called, asking if she wanted a limo, entry to shows, plane tickets. Backman resisted at first, but eventually she started saying yes each time an invitation arrived. When a family friend mentioned that she wanted to get married in Las Vegas, Backman made a phone call and the next weekend they were in the Palazzo. Not that many people even know it exists, she told me. I've called and asked about it, and the operator said it's too exclusive to give out information over the phone. The room was like something out of a movie. It had six bedrooms and a deck and private hot tub for each room. I had a butler. When she got to the casinos, her gambling habits took over almost as soon as she walked in. She would often play four hours at a stretch. She started small at first, using only the casino's money. Then the numbers got larger, and she would replenish her chips with withdrawals from the ATM. It didn't seem to her like there was a problem. 
Eventually she was playing $200 to $300 per hand, two hands at a time, sometimes for a dozen hours at a time. One night, she won $60,000. Twice she walked away up $40,000. One time she went to Vegas with $100,000 in her bag and came home with nothing. It didn't really change her lifestyle. Her bank account was still so large that she never had to think about money. That's why her parents had left her the inheritance in the first place, so she could enjoy herself. She would try to slow down, but the casino's appeals became more insistent. One host told me that he would get fired if I didn't come in that weekend, she said. Get fired if I... They would say, we sent you to this concert and we gave you this nice room, and you haven't been gambling that much lately. Well, they did do those nice things for me. In 2005, her husband's grandmother died and the family went back to her old hometown for the funeral. She went to the casino the night before the service to clear her head and get mentally prepared for all the activity the next day. Over a span of 12 hours, she lost $250,000. At the time, it was almost as if the scale of the loss didn't register. When she thought about it afterward, a quarter of a million dollars gone, it didn't seem real. She had lied to herself about so much already, that her marriage was happy when she and her husband sometimes went days without really speaking, that her friends were close when she knew they appeared for Vegas trips and were gone when it was over, that she was a good mom when she saw her daughters making the same mistakes she had made, getting pregnant too early, that her parents would have been pleased to see their money thrown away this way. It felt like there were only two choices, continue lying to herself or admit that she had dishonored everything her mother and father had worked so hard to earn. A quarter of a million dollars. She didn't tell her husband. I concentrated on something new whenever that night popped into my mind, she said. Soon, though, the losses were too big to ignore. Some nights, after her husband was asleep, Backman would crawl out of bed, sit at the kitchen table, and scribble out figures, trying to make sense of how much was gone. The depression that had started after her parents' death seemed to be getting deeper. She felt so tired all the time. And Hera's kept calling. This desperation starts once you realize how much you've lost, and then you feel like you can't stop because you've got to win it back, she said. Sometimes I'd start feeling jumpy, like I couldn't think straight, and I'd know that if I pretended I might take another trip soon, it would calm me down. Then they would call and I'd say yes because it was so easy to give in. I really believed I might win it back. I'd won before. If you couldn't win, then gambling wouldn't be legal, right? In 2010, a cognitive neuroscientist named Reza Habib asked 22 people to lie inside an MRI and watch a slot machine spin around and around. Half of the participants were pathological gamblers, people who had lied to their families about their gambling missed work to gamble, or had bounced checks at a casino. While the other half were people who gambled socially but didn't exhibit any problematic behaviors. Everyone was placed on their backs inside a narrow tube and told to watch wheels of lucky sevens, apples, and gold bars spin across a video screen. The slot machine was programmed to deliver three outcomes, a win, a loss, and a near miss in which the slots almost matched up but, at the last moment, failed to align. None of the participants won or lost any money. 
All they had to do was watch the screen as the MRI recorded their neurological activity. We were particularly interested in looking at the brain systems involved in habits and addictions, Habib told me. What we found was that, neurologically speaking, pathological gamblers got more excited about winning. When the symbols lined up, even though they didn't actually win any money, the areas in their brains related to emotion and reward were much more active than in non-pathological gamblers. But what was really interesting were the near misses. To pathological gamblers, near misses looked like wins. Their brains reacted almost the same way. But to a non-pathological gambler, a near miss was like a loss. People without a gambling problem were better at recognizing that a near miss means you still lose. Two groups saw the exact same event, but from a neurological perspective, they viewed it differently. People with gambling problems got a mental high from the near misses, which, Habib hypothesizes, is probably why they gamble for so much longer than everyone else, because the near miss triggers those habits that prompt them to put down another bet. The non-problem gamblers, when they saw a near miss, got a dose of apprehension that triggered a different habit, the one that says I should quit before it gets worse. It's unclear if problem gamblers' brains are different because they are born that way or if sustained exposure to slot machines, online poker, and casinos can change how the brain functions. What is clear is that real neurological differences impact how pathological gamblers process information, which helps explain why Angie Backman lost control every time she walked into a casino. Gaming companies are well aware of this tendency, of course, which is why in the past decades, slot machines have been reprogrammed to deliver a more constant supply of near wins. Gamblers who keep betting after near wins are what make casinos, racetracks, and state lotteries so profitable. Adding a near miss to a lottery is like pouring jet fuel on a fire, said a state lottery consultant who spoke to me on the condition of anonymity. You want to know why sales have exploded? Every other scratch-off ticket is designed to make you feel like you almost won. The areas of the brain that Habib scrutinized in his experiment, the basal ganglia and the brainstem, are the same regions where habits reside, as well as where behaviors related to sleep terrors start. In the past decade, as new classes of pharmaceuticals have emerged that target that region, such as medications for Parkinson's disease, we've learned a great deal about how sensitive some habits can be to outside stimulation. Class action lawsuits in the United States, Australia, and Canada have been filed against drug manufacturers, alleging that pharmaceuticals caused patients to compulsively bet, eat, shop, and masturbate by targeting the circuitry involved in the habit loop. In 2008, a federal jury in Minnesota awarded a patient $8.2 million in a lawsuit against a drug company after the man claimed that his medication had caused him to gamble away more than $250,000. Hundreds of similar cases are pending. In those cases, we can definitively say that patients have no control over their obsessions, because we can point to a drug that impacts their no chemistry, said Habib. But when we look at the brains of people who are obsessive gamblers, they look very similar, except they can't blame it on a medication. They tell researchers they don't want to gamble, but they can't resist the cravings. So why do we say that those gamblers are in control of their actions and the Parkinson's patients aren't? On March 18, 2006, Angie Backman flew to a casino at Hera's invitation. 
By then, her bank account was almost empty. When she tried to calculate how much she had lost over her lifetime, she put the figure at about $900,000. She had told Harris that she was almost broke, but the man on the phone said to come anyway. They would give her a line of credit, he said. It felt like I couldn't say no, like whenever they dangled the smallest temptation in front of me, my brain would shut off. I know that sounds like an excuse, but they always promised it would be different this time, and I knew no matter how much I fought against it, I was eventually going to give in. She brought the last of her money with her. She started playing $400 a hand, two hands at a time. If she could get up a little bit, she told herself, just $100,000, she could quit and have something to give her kids. Her husband joined her for a while, but at midnight he went to bed. Around 2 a.m., the money she had come with was gone. A Harris employee gave her a promissory note to sign. Six times she signed for more cash, for a total of $125,000. At about six in the morning, she hit a hot streak and her piles of chips began to grow. A crowd gathered. She did a quick tally, not quite enough to pay off the notes she had signed, but if she kept playing smart, she would come out on top, and then quit for good. She won five times in a row. She only needed to win $20,000 more to pull ahead. Then the dealer hit 21. Then he hit it again. A few hands later, he hit it a third time. By 10 in the morning, all her chips were gone. She asked for more credit, but the casino said no. Backman left the table dazed and walked to her suite. It felt like the floor was shaking. She trailed a hand along the wall so that if she fell, she'd know which way to lean. When she got to the room, her husband was waiting for her. It's all gone, she told him. Why don't you take a shower and go to bed? He said. It's okay. You've lost before. It's all gone, she said. What do you mean? The money is gone, she said. All of it. At least we still have the house, he said. She didn't tell him that she'd taken out a line of credit on their home months earlier and had gambled it away. Brian Thomas murdered his wife. Angie Backman squandered her inheritance. Is there a difference in how society should assign responsibility? Thomas's lawyer argued that his client wasn't culpable for his wife's death because he acted unconsciously, automatically, his reaction cued by the belief that an intruder was attacking. He never chose to kill, his lawyer said, and so he shouldn't be held responsible for her death. By the same logic, Backman, as we know from Reza Habib's research on the brains of problem gamblers, was also driven by powerful cravings. She may have made a choice that first day when she got dressed up and decided to spend the afternoon in a casino, and perhaps in the weeks or months that followed. But years later, by the time she was losing $250,000 in a single night, after she was so desperate to fight the urges that she moved to a state where gambling wasn't legal, she was no longer making conscious decisions. Historically, in neuroscience, we've said that people with brain damage lose some of their free will, said Habib. But when a pathological gambler sees a casino, it seems very similar. It seems like they're acting without choice. Thomas's lawyer argued, in a manner that everyone believed, that his client had made a terrible mistake and would carry the guilt of it for life. However, isn't it clear that Backman feels much the same way? I feel so guilty, so ashamed of what I've done, she told me.
I feel like I've let everyone down. I know that I'll never be able to make up for this, no matter what I do. That said, there is one critical distinction between the cases of Thomas and Backman, Thomas murdered an innocent person. He committed what has always been the gravest of crimes. Angie Backman lost money. The only victims were herself, her family, and a $27 billion company that loaned her $125,000. Thomas was set free by society. Backman was held accountable for her deeds. Ten months after Backman lost everything, Harris tried to collect from her bank. The promissory notes she signed bounced, and so Harris sued her, demanding Backman pay her debts and an additional $375,000 in penalties, a civil punishment, in effect, for committing a crime. She countersued, claiming that by extending her credit, free sweets, and booze, Harris had preyed on someone they knew had no control over her habits. Her case went all the way to the state Supreme Court. Barkman's lawyer, echoing the arguments that Thomas's attorney had made on the murderer's behalf, said that she shouldn't be held culpable because she had been reacting automatically to temptations that Harris put in front of her. Once the offers started rolling in, he argued, once she walked into the casino, her habits took over and it was impossible for her to control her behavior. The justices, acting on behalf of society, said Backman was wrong. There is no common law duty obligating a casino operator to refrain from attempting to entice or contact gamblers that it knows or should know are compulsive gamblers, the court wrote. The state had a voluntary exclusion program in which any person could ask for their name to be placed upon a list that required casinos to bar them from playing, and the existence of the voluntary exclusion program suggests the legislature intended pathological gamblers to take personal responsibility to prevent and protect themselves against compulsive gambling, wrote Justice Robert Rucker. Perhaps the difference in outcomes for Thomas and Backman is fair. After all, it's easier to sympathize with a devastated widower than a housewife who threw everything away. Why is it easier, though? Why does it seem the bereaved husband is a victim, while the bankrupt gambler got her just deserts? Why do some habits seem like they should be so easy to control, while others seem out of reach? More important, is it right to make a distinction in the first place? Some thinkers, Aristotle wrote in Nicomachean Ethics, hold that it is by nature that people become good, others that it is by habit, and others that it is by instruction. For Aristotle, habits reign supreme. The behaviors that occur unthinkingly are the evidence of our truest selves, he said. So just as a piece of land has to be prepared beforehand if it is to nourish the seed, so the mind of the pupil has to be prepared in its habits if it is to enjoy and dislike the right things. Habits are not as simple as they appear. As I've tried to demonstrate throughout this book, habits, even once they are rooted in our minds, aren't destiny. We can choose our habits, once we know how. Everything we know about habits, from neurologists studying amnesiacs and organizational experts remaking companies, is that any of them can be changed, if you understand how they function. Hundreds of habits influence our days, they guide how we get dressed in the morning, talk to our kids, and fall asleep at night, they impact what we eat for lunch, how we do business, and whether we exercise or have a beer after work. Each of them has a different cue and offers a unique reward. Some are simple and others are complex, 
drawing upon emotional triggers and offering subtle neurochemical prizes. But every habit, no matter its complexity, is malleable. The most addicted alcoholics can become sober. The most dysfunctional companies can transform themselves. A high school dropout can become a successful manager. However, to modify a habit, you must decide to change it. You must consciously accept the hard work of identifying the cues and rewards that drive the habit's routines, and find alternatives. You must know you have control and be self-conscious enough to use it, and every chapter in this book is devoted to illustrating a different aspect of why that control is real. So though both Angie Backman and Brian Thomas made variations on the same claim, that they acted out of habit, that they had no control over their actions because those behaviors unfolded automatically, it seems fair that they should be treated differently. It is just that Angie Backman should be held accountable and that Brian Thomas should go free because Thomas never knew the patterns that drove him to kill existed in the first place, much less that he could master them. Backman, on the other hand, was aware of her habits. And once you know a habit exists, you have the responsibility to change it. If she had tried a bit harder, perhaps she could have reined them in. Others have done so, even in the face of greater temptations though, even that, in some ways, is the point of this book. Perhaps a sleepwalking murderer can plausibly argue he wasn't aware of his habit, and so he doesn't bear responsibility for his crime. But almost all the other patterns that exist in most people's lives, how we eat and sleep and talk to our kids, how we unthinkingly spend our time, attention, and money, those are habits that we know exist. And once you understand that habits can change, you have the freedom, and the responsibility, to remake them. Once you understand that habits can be rebuilt, the power of habit becomes easier to grasp, and the only option left is to get to work. All our life, William James told us in the prologue, so far as it has definite form, is but a mass of habits, practical, emotional, and intellectual, systematically organized for our weal or woe, and bearing us irresistibly toward our destiny, whatever the latter may be. James, who died in 1910, hailed from an accomplished family. His father was a wealthy and prominent theologian. His brother, Henry, was a brilliant, successful writer whose novels are still studied today. William, into his thirties, was the unaccomplished one in the family. He was sick as a child. He wanted to become a painter, and then enrolled in medical school, then left to join an expedition up the Amazon River. Then he quit that, as well. He chastised himself in his diary for not being good at anything. What's more, he wasn't certain if he could get better. In medical school, he had visited a hospital for the insane and had seen a man hurling himself against a wall. The patient, a doctor explained, suffered from hallucinations. James didn't say that he often felt like he shared more in common with the patients than his fellow physicians. Today I about touched bottom, and perceived plainly that I must face the choice with open eyes, James wrote in his diary in 1870, when he was 28 years old. Shall I frankly throw the moral business overboard, as one unsuited to my innate aptitudes? Is suicide? in other words, a better choice? Two months later, James made a decision. Before doing anything rash, he would conduct a year-long experiment. He would spend twelve months believing that he had control over himself and his destiny, that he could become better, that he had the free will to change. 
there was no proof that it was true, but he would free himself to believe, all evidence to the contrary, that change was possible. I think that yesterday was a crisis in my life, he wrote in his diary. Regarding his ability to change, I will assume for the present, until next year, that it is no illusion. My first act of free will shall be to believe in free will. Over the next year, he practiced every day. In his diary, he wrote as if his control over himself and his choices was never in question. He got married. He started teaching at Harvard. He began spending time with Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who would go on to become a Supreme Court Justice, and Charles Sanders Peirce, a pioneer in the study of semiotics, in a discussion group they called the Metaphysical Club. Two years after writing his diary entry, James sent a letter to the philosopher Charles Renauvia, who had expounded at length on free will. I must not lose this opportunity of telling you of the admiration and gratitude which have been excited in me by the reading of your essay, James wrote. Thanks to you I possess for the first time an intelligible and reasonable conception of freedom, I can say that through that philosophy I am beginning to experience the rebirth of the moral life, and I can assure you, sir, that this is no small thing. Later, he would famously write that the will to believe is the most important ingredient in creating belief in change. And that one of the most important methods for creating that belief was habits. Habits, he noted, are what allow us to do a thing with difficulty the first time, but soon do it more and more easily, and finally, with sufficient practice, do it semi-mechanically, or with hardly any consciousness at all. Once we choose who we want to be, People grow to the way in which they have been exercised, just as a sheet of paper or a coat, once creased or folded, tends to fall forever afterward into the same identical folds. If you believe you can change, if you make it a habit, the change becomes real. This is the real power of habit, the insight that your habits are what you choose them to be. Once that choice occurs, and becomes automatic, it's not only real, it starts to seem inevitable, the thing, as James wrote, that bears us irresistibly toward our destiny, whatever the latter may be. The way we habitually think of our surroundings and ourselves create the worlds that each of us inhabit. There are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says morning, boys. How's the water? The writer David Foster Wallace told a class of graduating college students in 2005 and the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes what the hell is water? The water is habits, the unthinking choices and invisible decisions that surround us every day, and which, just by looking at them, become visible again. Throughout his life, William James wrote about habits and their central role in creating happiness and success. He eventually devoted an entire chapter in his masterpiece The Principles of Psychology to the topic. Water, he said, is the most apt analogy for how habit works. Water hollows out for itself a channel, which grows broader and deeper, and, after having ceased to flow, it resumes, when it flows again, the path traced by itself before. You now know how to redirect that path. You now have the power to swim, afterward. Some things learned about weight loss, smoking, procrastination, and teaching. A few months after The Power of Habit was published, I was at my desk at the New York Times when an email appeared in my inbox. It was from a woman who had received the book from a friend during a dark time in her life. 
She had recently lost her job, she wrote, and endured a painful breakup. She was drinking too much. It felt like everything was spinning out of control. People had talked to me about trying Alcoholics Anonymous before, but for many reasons I had never been able to go, she told me. The day after I finished the first half of your book, I had what I hope will be my last drink. I went to my first AA meeting on August 1st, six days later. I have now been sober for 41 days. I have a long way to go, but I have a new hope that I never had before. At 37 years old, my life has never been as good as it is today. I don't know if I would have ever made it to an AA meeting had I not read your book. I've worked as a journalist for more than a decade, and have been fortunate to work on projects that helped expose wrongdoings, spark judicial investigations, and convince lawmakers to improve the world a little bit. In my work, I often hear from people who say that newspaper stories have changed their lives. But I never received a letter like this. The truth is the power of habit played, at best, an infinitesimally small role in helping this woman find solace. Credit for her recovery rightfully goes to the friends who encouraged her to seek help, to the people inside AA who supported her sobriety, and, most of all, to her strength and determination to change. Yet her words struck a chord. Everyone goes through periods when we know we need to change. Studies, however, tell us that simply knowing often isn't enough. Sometimes it takes something else, exposure to the right idea. Hearing stories that resonate in our own lives, a certain kind of encouragement, that makes the first step feel within reach. So as I read this email, I began to wonder, have ideas like the habit loop and keystone habits and the golden rule of habit change influenced other people in similar ways, too? How, in other words, does understanding how habits function change how we behave? What happens when a small idea encounters the world? To find out, I decided to reach out to a few of the readers who had emailed me. A year ago, Tom Payton was driving home from helping coordinate the New York Special Olympics when he pulled into a rest stop on I-90. For years, he had used food to counter boredom and stress, to the point where eating rituals had become the structure of his life. A pastry in the morning to help him start work. A soda in the afternoon to keep him awake a beer or two when he got home to relax. At the rest stop, he stepped on a scale outside the bathroom. He weighed 340 pounds. Tom, I was shocked. I knew I was getting heavier, but I had never gone up to 340. At that point I just shook my head and said, this has to change. Not long after, I bought The Power of Habit, and when I started reading the stories, it started to dawn on me that I needed to step back and figure out the reasons I'm eating, the cues and rewards that have caused me to gain so much weight. Question, what do you think was triggering your overeating? Tom, I think it was the fact that I was sometimes bored or stressed, and I had gotten into this habit of eating to relieve that. I had a cheese danish to start the morning, or fries whenever I ordered a hamburger. I thought of it as comfort food, that I deserved to feel good when I ate. So I decided to start a new routine. I didn't want to think of it as a diet, that had negative connotations, and I knew I needed to create a new habit, instead of just squash an old one. I would weigh myself every morning. And because I weighed so much, minor changes, 
like a piece of fruit instead of a Danish, had a small but pretty quick impact. And when I saw those first few pounds disappear, there was this immediate sense of excitement like, wow, I'm really doing something. It made it easier to believe this would work, that I could actually succeed at losing weight. There's a huge amount of research validating Tom's instincts. When researchers with the National Weight Control Registry examined the tactics used by successful dieters, they found that two characteristics, in particular, stood out. People who successfully maintain weight loss typically eat breakfast every morning. They also weigh themselves each day. Part of the reason why these habits matter is practical, eating a healthy breakfast makes it less likely you will snack later in the day, according to studies. And frequently measuring your weight allows us, sometimes almost subconsciously, to see how changing our diets influences the pounds lost. But just as important is the mental boost that daily, incremental weight loss provides. The small win of dropping even half a pound can provide the dose of momentum we need to stick with a diet. We need to see small victories to believe a long battle will be won. Question, have you continued weighing yourself? Tom, every day. And something similar happened with exercise. Within days of deciding to get in shape, I started exercising. I was tempted to buy a treadmill or join a gym, but then I thought, let me just walk to the supermarket, or I'll just park the car a little bit farther, so I have to walk across the lot. It gave me something to succeed at every day. Initially I walked maybe half a mile, and I'd do that for a week, and then I could go three quarters of a mile, and then I started walking at a brisk pace. I started enjoying it, which I didn't expect. Question, have there been setbacks? Tom, oh, yeah? I'll have a bag of potato chips now and then or the occasional candy bar, but I feel like my eyes on the prize. And when those cravings hit, they feel manageable. This raises another interesting point, no matter how strong our willpower, we're guaranteed to fall back into our old ways once in a while. But if we plan for those relapses, if we take steps to make sure those slips don't become a habit, it's easier to get back on track. Take, for instance, desserts. I've loved desserts for as long as I can remember. This wasn't a big problem before I had kids. Now, however, I have two sons. And the problem with an occasional dessert is that it can become a contagious habit, which became painfully obvious when my family took a vacation to Costa Rica a few years ago. Each night of that trip, after a fun-filled day of sightseeing, running into the waves, and a healthy family dinner, we let the kids have chocolate cookies. A lot of chocolate cookies. This, we reasoned, is what vacations are all about, treating each day like a celebration we all share. Except, when we got home, we overheard our oldest son describing his trip to a friend. There was an ocean, he said. There were monkeys living in the trees and baby turtles on the beach. But, best of all, there was chocolate every night. That's why vacations are great, he said while they played with Star Wars figures. Because you get to eat as much dessert as you want. My wife and I then noticed that whenever we talked about dinners, our son would mention dessert. We had habitualized him to associate mealtimes with sweets. So we decided to change the conversation. We started emphasizing all the other aspects of a family meal, the togetherness, the chance to share stories, the opportunity to remember vacation fun. 
Even Luke Skywalker, we pointed out, liked to share a bowl of gruel with Yoda and discuss the day. And, in keeping with the principle of the golden rule of habit change, we focused on emphasizing the other rewards that accompany dinner. If our son ate his broccoli, he got a story before bed. If he encouraged his brother to finish his peas, we told him a joke. It's not that we eradicated dessert. But we structured sweet flavored relapses in ways that defied patterns. In much the same way that Tom let himself have a candy bar once a month, we made sure that when our son got a treat, it occurred somewhat unexpectedly. Sometimes he had fruit after a bath. Occasionally a marshmallow made its way into his lunch bag. Habits emerge when patterns are predictable, when our brains learn to crave a specific reward at a specific moment. When rewards defy prediction, when we fall off the wagon in ways that confound expectations, we take some of the power out of a pattern. It's a little bit harder for the habit loop to start. It's question, so how much weight have you lost? Tom, it's been about six months, and I've lost about 70 pounds. I'm still going, I want to get myself down to about 225 or so. That's why the book was so important to me. It's a question of understanding yourself and figuring out these habits and making them part of your life. It's a struggle, but you can do it, and then you start to believe you can achieve almost anything. I felt bad about my weight for so long. And now I feel like I'm finally in control. Eric Earle started smoking when he was a teenager. He juggled classes in college with working as a personal trainer and tried to quit cigarettes a dozen times. He lectured his clients on using willpower to push themselves to exercise, to improve their diet, to finish one more set of leg lifts. And Eric knew willpower worked, he had grown up shy, with a speech disorder. But in high school, he had forced himself to join the debate team and had eventually come close to winning the state championship. Whenever he tried to quit smoking, however, it felt like that willpower fell apart. He read self-help books and tried eradicating every unhealthy habit. He posted affirmations on his wall and chewed gum, exercised more and wrote down his goals. He once went two weeks without nicotine. Each time, he started smoking again. I asked him why he thought his resolve kept failing. Eric, I think part of it was that I was trying to quit, just walk away, rather than replacing smoking with a new habit. I'm pretty driven, and so I wanted to, you know, try and live the perfect life. And sometimes I would get there for a few days, but it was too much. Question, why do you think that is? Eric, I think the problem was that I would try to quit everything at once. I would tell my clients they should change their diet and their exercise routines and wake up earlier, all at the same time. That's what I had learned, you need to overhaul your life. And I figured I could do the same thing. But I realized that I needed to focus on one thing at a time. Smoking was my keystone habit. If I wanted to quit, I had to approach the problem like a scientist and do experiments and focus on just one thing, giving up cigarettes. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. We'll be really thankful if you support us by clicking the link in the description so that we continue to create amazing content for you.